Welcome to Lafayette We're Here, the French history podcast for the American public by a Frenchman. I'm your host, Emmanuel Dubois, and today we have a special episode. I am joined by Sean J. McLaughlin, and together we're going to discuss Charles de Gaulle, John F. Kennedy, and the New World Order. So Sean, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, um, well, I, uh, I guess I'm technically now a Canadian... American, a hyphenated hybrid of the two. So uh, born and raised in Canada, and I've been working in the United States for about the last decade. So um, I was a history professor for many years, and um, my wife and I moved down to a uh, bucolic town in western Kentucky, not too far from uh, Nashville. I drove drive by uh, horse farms on my way to work. And um, at this particular juncture, I run uh, the archives at a university, Murray State University. and um, and also a museum. So, uh, but I, but I am still very much a historian at heart. And um, this um, particular topic about France and the United States, uh, two, the two greatest frenemies, I think, in the in the, in the Western world, it's always captured my imagination. And uh, I, I guess I've been working on this topic since I was a master's student um, a little over twenty years ago. And I think uh, part of it is, uh, you know, the tension between English and French, having grown up in Canada, you know, referendums. And, you know, if I if I sat down with a therapist, I'm sure I would figure it all out very quickly why this topic is so important to me. Yeah, it, it is certainly interesting. And yeah, the frenemies is a good way to describe the relationship between the French and the Americans, that's for sure. You know, I arrived in Canada in 95. Right a few months before the referendum, so I went through it. We didn't know what to expect, you know. We just arrived, we were French immigrants, uh, you know. In the end, you know, uh, nothing really changed, you know, from you know, at least from a geopolitical standpoint. Uh, but still, you know, it was an interesting experience, especially coming from France, which has a right. whole different way of managing its uh, territory. Let's put it this way. So, but here we're going to talk about events that happened a bit before that. Um, so, Sean, just to give the listeners like a, a basis to work with, can you give us like a quick description of France's place as a colonial power at the outcome of the Second World War? Okay, well, um, I think the best place to start is by explaining that um, the men who ran France in 1945-1946 are generally born in the late 19th century. And when they're thinking of France is a great power. Uh, they're thinking about, um, you know, far-flung colonies. That's part of the identity of being a great power. So there's this 15-year transitional period, you know, basically the life of the, the Fourth Republic, where you have men of a certain age trying to cling to an older view of what it means to be an important country in the world. And uh, de Gaulle is very much one of them. In, in 1946, when he's heading up the Provisional Republic, uh, and he over this period he he sort of transitions into a as he becomes older he becomes more modern in his thinking about what it what it takes to be important, and that old thing the colonies becomes significantly less important than possession of nuclear weapons, and um, so by by the early 1960s, France is a nuclear power. It's a, it's a new age great power, uh, divested of its colonies in Africa and in Asia, uh, still important in a different way. Um, one of the most important countries in the Western Alliance, very troublesome for Americans to deal with for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but possessing an incredible knowledge of the peoples of this like nascent third world, and um, I think, uh, I think like, if we're kind of looking at France in 1960, I think the most interesting perspective it has is, you know, what it's like to be under the German jackboot and um, to be colonized, to be an oppressed people. So there's that kind of lingering memory from the Second World War. And there's this, it's also combined with this desire to stay relevant and to kind of show some sympathy towards the peoples of the third world and um, use the expertise that France has ruling them as a means of staying relevant to the United States. So it's a very, it's a, they're kind of a melange of, 
of different currents of, of thought going forward. But um, France could be an incredibly useful ally to the United States if used properly. But Americans kind of really um, have a great deal of difficulty taking France seriously for reasons that are, in some respects, understandable, uh, in some respects that are completely unfair. So it's a country that's very badly stereotyped. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I, I have not spent nearly as much time in France as I, as I would have liked. But, you know, when you go there as an outsider, like as a, as a tourist, and you look at the country, you could say, okay, well, this is a country that does fashion. This is a country that does cosmetics. This is the thing that does showy things, feminine things. Or you could say this is a country that, you know, you get out a little bit in the countryside. You say this is a country that's like very much rooted in the earth and agriculture and very rooted in auto making and, and manufacturing. And it could be, is France a masculine country or a feminine country? Well, no, it's not either. It's a country. It's a neutral country. It does many different things at the same time. But if you're an American looking at the country, you tend to make one of two choices, and it tends to be in 1945 all the way through 1960 you know, or so, you tend to take the more derogatory, feminized version of, of France, which is, which is not, not fair. But it's a reality. It is. And, you know, I, I talked about that on my episode, like on uh, the fall of France of 1940, that there is a perspective that they are surrender monkeys that they would just drop their rifles and run at the first sign of a German soldier, which is complete, you know, BS. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, well, uh, it's, De Gaulle was winning tank battles against Heinz Guderian, who is, you know, the greatest uh, tank general the Germans have. Now, the front is collapsing all around him. But, um, you know, there are pockets of success and pockets of optimism. Yeah, and as you said, you know, you cannot stereotype a country to a couple of point of views. You know, France is many things. And, you know, I tend to say that, you know, France has been around for, you know, basically a thousand years. So they must be doing a couple of things right, you know, uh, otherwise they would have just disappeared. <laughs> but of course, they did a lot of wrong. And we're going to go into that also. And it is what you said at the beginning. It is true that France and the, and the USA have a unique relationship. I don't see any other two countries in the world that have that very special link dating back to the origin of one of the two countries. The participation of France in the American Revolutionary War is pretty known. You know, there's a reason why this podcast is called Lafayette, we're here. So it does have that love-hate relationship, because in the 20th century, America becomes the dominant power, and France stops being a dominant power. And I recall I had a teacher that would say that France in the 50s and 60s and 70s realized that the French leaders were not stupid, but they still had the reflexes and the knowledge of a great power. And they used that knowledge and those reflexes, you know, because they could, they could see things, they could understand things going in the world better than other countries because of their past experience. And the problem is their main ally, the USA, would not always listen to them for the reasons that you just said, I think, you know, that there is some prejudice. There's also some, you know, legitimate questioning. You know, you just don't take the advice at face value. You have to question it. That's perfectly understandable. But there is also that view that France is a weaker power, that is, uh, it is, I can't put it, it's spiraling down, which, you know, is a bit of an over, it's not a good understanding of the situation. So I think the goal embodies this perfectly because as you just said at the outcome of world war ii he is a very traditionalist man in this point of view of france and the rest of the world but the interesting thing about the goal is that he evolves he changes as he gets older which is not that common when you think about it people tend to do the opposite as they get older and that's one thing i talked a lot about in my episode on the goal is that he changes and because of that some people saw him as a traitor because he would change his mind of, on France's part in the world. You know, he would go from being pro-empire, pro-colonies to say, well, you know, that's not the way to do things anymore. 
And a lot of French people had a problem with that, especially, you know, ministers or other important figures in France. So let's talk about when de Gaulle becomes president in France in 58. He's president, France has a new republic, the fifth republic, which she still has today, basically created by de Gaulle for de Gaulle. You know, he made the constitution around himself. Let's put it this way, the French president has a lot of power, more than in most democracies, but he's elected directly by the people. It's, you know, direct election. There is no electoral college in the way the French president is elected. So how complicated is de Gaulle's relationship with the USA and the various administrations he encounters? He starts with Eisenhower, then he has Kennedy, then Johnson. Well, um, he actually, um, I mean, he's a colleague of, uh, of Dwight Eisenhower, right? Like they're both career military men. They're both heads of state. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on paper, uh, Eisenhower is an American version of de Gaulle, and de Gaulle is a French version of Eisenhower. They should be able to get along very easily, one would think. Now, over the course of the war, there are you know, various sources of annoyance. Um, you know, there's the issue of, um, well, should the United States work with certain Vichy officials that are kind of dabbling with the idea of turning on the regime? Or should they go with de Gaulle, who has never surrendered, you know, never turned his, his back on, on the struggle? And, you know, there's this feeling. Uh, so the Americans, they, they flirt with too many different people when they had one, you know, inspiring leader in front of them, which was a mistake. And there's this feeling for the advisors of both Eisenhower and for Kennedy that, um, De Gaulle will never forgive us for, for this, for just not picking him from the outset. And there's this very sensitivity to past policy that a lot of the men of the late 50s and early 60s, mid 60s weren't responsible for, but they were very kind of conscious of this kind of awkward wartime relationship. Now, um, De Gaulle does come to the United States. He does a state visit, uh, very popular. Uh, his approval ratings in the United States are, are quite high. Um, he's viewed as somebody who... Um, He's a strong figure. He's a genuine war hero. He's a unifier. Americans think he's going to be good for France. They think he's going to be good for NATO, the Western Alliance. But when de Gaulle is, um, is meeting with Eisenhower, there's one thing that he, he wants that seems fairly reasonable on paper. Americans call it uh, tripartitism. And for de Gaulle, he called it uh, directoire, like the like a directory. So basically, you know, NATO is this, it's not a, like quite a sprawling alliance that it would later become at this point, but you have, you, you know, you have sharks and you have minnows within NATO. And um, the reality in 58, 59, 1960 is that, you know, the United States and France and Britain can both project power overseas. They are like the three strong members of NATO. And De Gaulle looks at this alliance and he said he, he's seeing France being reduced to the same role as Italy. No disrespect to Italy, problematic past, you know, not the same cash in the world uh, in Belgium, you know. Uh, so he, he just he, he feels like his country has been relegated unfairly to a second tier. And so his suggestion to the Americans is, um, you know, and particularly by the point when France and Britain are on the cusp of becoming nuclear powers. There's, there are also, you know, two of the other five members of the UN Security Council. So he says, look, NATO is a big alliance with many countries. However, before we go to the table with anything, or before you go to the table with anything, perhaps sit down with London, sit down with Paris, and we'll hash things out first. It'll be like a three-way agreement. And then we'll take our shared position to the rest of NATO. And essentially, we're going to kind of like massage how decisions are made and then have everyone else approve what we've done. Now, from a French perspective, this is very, you know, I mean, there's obviously a first tier and then there's a high second tier. And then there's a third tier. And unfortunately, Canada is part of that distant third tier. Okay, it's just a reality. So it makes sense for the top three 
at the at the top of the pyramid to be talking. But from an American perspective, you know, if we give France this, then we're going to offend the Italians, we're going to offend the Belgians, we're going to offend the Dutch, and you know, we'll make one partner happy, and then we'll make eight completely alienated. So um, they. They just, uh, instead of, the thing that's infuriating for De Gaulle is he's presented an idea, he's explained why he wants it, and told the Americans what the logic is and how it's meant to function. And the Americans never say yes or they say no. And they leave it to drag on to the end of the Eisenhower presidency. And so when there's this presidential transition, Kennedy comes in and he hasn't heard, De Gaulle hasn't heard a no yet. So he just thought, okay, well, I'll try again with the new guy. And this process drags out for a couple of months. And the Americans have never had any intention of giving him what he wanted. And if they'd simply said, your idea is a non-starter from the very beginning, I think it would have made it easier for him to pivot to something else and just accepted that defeat and moved on to other diplomatic priorities. But that's wildly annoying to the, to the French government, wildly annoying. and disrespectful, frankly. Now, one of the infuriating things is later when Eisenhower says, uh, you know, in his post-presidency, he says, you know, if I was in de Gaulle's position, I would have asked for the exact same thing from an American president. I totally understood what he was doing and why, and it seemed reasonable. I just didn't want to give it to him. So, uh, you know, that's where we are. And it's it's kind of, uh, there's no, there's, in a sense, there's really, like the relationship kind of doesn't really recover from from that it's you know you've asked for something that should be easy to just it doesn't cost you anything really but it does make me feel better about myself but you won't give it to me you know it, it creates a lot of hurt it's like the ego of the nation goes in stops the nation from doing the right thing even from for, yeah. for herself you know it was not necessarily a bad thing for the americans it just you know eh. but i get their point you know you don't want to make the rest of the europeans unhappy Yeah. You know, that's a rational opinion and, you know, one that should be brought uh, in context. But you cannot just ignore the other guy. You have to give him an answer. Otherwise, you know, as you said, it's disrespe disrespectful and it starts the relationship very badly until the goal is president, uh, at least of France. Yeah. So one of, one of the things the Americans get hung up on is uh, Eisenhower thinks that to give in to this request, it's it's creating a layer of bureaucracy within NATO. And then later... De Gaulle says, no, I just wanted to talk. I just wanted us to get like, you know, three foreign ministers at a table talking before summit. It was going to be much looser and more informal than, than you thought. So they, they can't hash it out. And uh, it's, a, it's uh, in my view, it's a reasonable request, particularly like the French conception is, you know, Britain's been heavily engaged in South Asia for over a century. We've been heavily engaged in huge swaths of Africa. We have expertise we bring to the table. The United States has had, you know, very limited contact with um, Africa prior to decolonization, very limited contact with Southeast Asia during the colonial period. So um, we have no intention of interfering in Latin American affairs. We'll consider that the American backyard. And, you know, each kind of member of this directorate would have its own area of expertise that would bring to the other two for discussion. So that was the way it was supposed to go, but never happened. As you said, it's, uh, it's, it's logical. You know, you should take the expertise of your allies. You know, it's a good thing for you and for the whole alliance. But then again, you know, it also kind of makes sense for the Americans to want to impose their point of view because from the in the 50s, in their mind, there is no question. They're the leaders of the Western world and of the free world. And I don't know if they feel threatened in any way by the other powers like France or Britain, like in the on their own prestige in the world, but you can see, they can be defensive, the American leaders, even though they are in a position of force. I mean, neither France or Britain are even close to American power. You know, as you said, they are, they are important military powers. They can project their, their strength overseas, which most countries can't. But still, you know, it's, it's, it's tiny compared to the American behemoth. But as you said, they do have expertise, they do have knowledge of the world that the Americans just don't have, because America was never a colonial power, at least not on the same scale as France and Britain. So it's one of the, you could say, positives of the colonial era is that it does bring knowledge of the world, even if it was acquired in the most terrible way. Just to kind of underline that point, you know, in uh, 1941, at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack, there were three Americans who spoke Vietnamese. 
So when the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is the forerunner of the CIA, when it goes looking for agents to parachute into the country to liaise with Ho Chi Minh and, and like the anti-Japanese rebels, it's a very short list of candidates for them to interview, right? Because this is, uh, you know, it's part of the, the French-speaking world. There's virtually no American contact with Vietnam in 1941. Like, literally none at all beyond these three guys. And then 20 years later, it suddenly becomes the most important part of, like, the pivot point of all of, of Asia. So I think, uh, you know, there's something to the argument that, uh, like, uh, you know, 80 years into our time in Vietnam, it, it ended poorly. The commercial ties remain. Educational ties remain. Political ties remain. We have left. However, we can still put ourselves at your service. This argument from fr France, it's, it's should have been more persuasive than it was, which I, I find, this is why I find the subject so interesting. So when we get to John F. Kennedy, when he arrives on the scene, okay, so like this is, there's been two years of Eisenhower and de Gaulle kind of just kind of circling each other not satisfying the other's needs as a, as a head of state. Transition, period of excitement. And JFK has very low esteem of France. And some stuff uh, I found um, in Boston when I was working on my first book. You know, he spent a lot of time in France. He was actually in France in, uh, in the late 30s for a while. And uh, he, his diary is just full of just negative, every little thing. But the French have cabbage breath and, uh, you know, the stoves don't work properly and everybody's trying to rip me off when I want to. It's just, you know, he's on holidays and it's just like a diary of horrible things that are happening to me in this vacation paradise. And it just seems a little bit hyperbolic and you kind of wonder what's going on with him. Like there's something reflexive and inside of him like he just i don't know you don't know where he picked it up you know we all have racist uncles who say things at the thanksgiving table and then you know unfortunately a brother or sister repeats them you feel like that's kind of what's going on with him in, in france but um so he he doesn't like france at all he's no fan of the algerian war he thought that the french had totally screwed up the war in uh, in indochina and says so you know speeches from the senate are just very you know anti-french or certainly undiplomatic you know, words towards an ally. But de Gaulle, he kind of is, hey, he captivates Kennedy's imagination because he's proud. You know, he's physically imposing. You know, he was, uh, you know, he was a tank commander. Like, he was a genuine war hero. He never surrendered. He didn't, his reputation wasn't stained with, with Vichy. And so Kennedy very much, and there's a generation gap, like a, a very big generation gap. So Kennedy is looking to De Gaulle and this you know new Fifth Republic that he has, and he's he's somewhat optimistic that this could there with this new leader, new generation coming in on the American side that there could be a turning point in Franco-American relations. Now in Paris, De Gaulle looks at Kennedy, and he thinks uh, you know this guy's he's young, he's he's a bit of a playboy, but uh, he went to Harvard. Uh, he's a genuine war hero, PT Boat One Hundred Nine, and I'm kind of interested in seeing whether he brings a fresh per perspective to, to the relationship. So they both hope that things are going to go well. And uh, it's my belief, you know, in my research, that the first foreign head of state that Kennedy reached out to was de Gaulle. And he uh, sent him a letter. So this, uh, the thing that kind of quickly emerges is um, de Gaulle sees Kennedy as somebody who is Harvard educated, but has an undergraduate's you know, depth of interest in certain problems, you know, like you read one book and then you repeat that author's argument and then you figure, you know, you've got it all, all sorted. So Kennedy sends this long letter. Uh, I believe it was written by him personally, not kind of translated through a, an advisor. And uh, so Kennedy, uh, the Belgian Congo is, it's in flames. Kennedy has a bunch of ideas. He thinks they're going to fix the problem. And so he sends this letter to de Gaulle. And it's very much a, look at how brilliant I am. My first week on the job, I'm totally going to fix like one of this, the, the biggest international hotspots and just kind of rubber stamp this. You give me your seal of approval and then we'll go get her done, right? 
And so the letter comes to De Gaulle, and De Gaulle says, you know, I'm very flattered. I'm very honored for you to reach out to me. However, according to international law, this won't work. According to, like, the terms of the alliance, also, like, manpower, logistics, all this. In the end, it's very impractical. Let's keep talking. This was a great letter. Thank you. And here's my letter back to you. And my read on it was, De Gaulle was somewhat surprised because he found out that Kennedy was a little bit more shallow than he'd been hoping. But he still thought that this would be the beginning of a very long-running conversation on a number of pressing interests of mutual concern. Kennedy seems to have taken it personally. And uh, he totally forgets all of the positive views he had on of De Gaulle before he started writing the letter. And then he immediately reverts back to his stock anti-French prejudices of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So if that's all it took is one polite letter to kind of throw him back a step, then that was, you know that that's his natural position. His natural position was to be adversarial to France. And it's the complete opposite of the goal. The goal has had skin thick as a tank. You know, the, he, he took nothing personally, that man, even when he should have. Uh, you, you know, he was known to never show emotion or very rarely show emotion. I talked a lot about that in my episode about him. You know, even when he gets shot at, he basically doesn't react. And I used to say, you know, when the goal was a young man in the trenches in World War One, imagine being two meters tall in a trench. You know, you're the target. And yet, you know, he showed courage, he charged, even he was even reckless at times. So... Uh, it's a huge difference between the two men. And as you said, you know, Kennedy was way more emotional. And, you know, it's part of his qualities too, you know, because he brought that, which is more modern, if you will, you know, he brought that modernity to the to the presidency. And De Gaulle was way more classic. But I think also, I mean, I want to be unfair to JFK, but at this point in their lives, De Gaulle is probably more wise than, than JFK is. Uh, has more experience, he's calmer. And uh, what I find funny, though, is even though all Kennedy has all these prejudices against the French, he marries Jacqueline Bouvier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's when you think about it, it's just plain funny, you know. That, that is an interesting one, because um, he was quite happy in his bachelorhood. Uh, however, there were many people around him that suggested that, look, if you're a single man in, in D.C., into, into your 30s, there's going to be a whisper campaign against you. So um, if you want to make a run for the White House, you're going to have to pick somebody. And that's who he, he picked. So, But, you know, I, I guess there's a question of, I mean, the thing that we'll never know about Kennedy is, uh, you, you know, what would have happened had he got a second term? He, he certainly does feel, and uh, like my book is very critical of, uh, of of Kennedy's decision making in, in Vietnam, I think as a person, however, there are many admirable traits. Uh, he was essentially physically disabled. He had an experimental back surgery in the 1950s, and there were points like the stuff you read about him. Like all his doctors said, uh, just you know, take it easy for the rest of your life. Your family has money. Just spend your time on your boat, on the beach. Don't put yourself in high-stress situations. Like, he couldn't even pick his kids up. Like, his back was so messed up. The rocking chairs in the White House, that was because it was the only thing he could he could sit in comfortably. And, uh, you know, he couldn't even board. Uh, like, there were days when his back was so bad, he couldn't even walk up the steps to get onto Air Force One. They had to use, like, a cherry lift, like a cherry picker to physically lift him up. And the cables they they sent over to the uh, American embassy in Paris before his uh, state visit in the spring of 61, it was all like, the plane trip is going to completely exhaust him. He needs to have a bath at this temperature. He needs to have these this many of these cold beers within reach of the bathtub. It's going to be like a day of, like we all need a recovery day after flying, but he was just totally gassed. Like it was a different level. So, you know, like he he wanted the job and he pressed himself beyond perhaps his physical limits. Uh, I think he showed an incredible potential for growth. I think his second term would have been much better than his his first. You know, if we look at you know his record on civil rights, you know he starts off disinterested 
and then he gets persuaded to get involved through his brother and then eventually starts taking more forceful actions. I think, you know, very young guy, just maybe possibly too young to be president. And I think if he'd got his feet under him in a second term, a little bit more maturity, he would have, he would have got better with time. But uh, yeah, that, that being said, it just, um, there was the thing that I find in, in French American conversations in the early sixties is the French are, you know, presenting ideas about policies and, and the Americans who are listening to them aren't thinking they're not discussing the merits of the ideas. They're just talking about the people who are talking to them and their mannerisms and what they did during the war 20 years earlier and why that should disqualify them from, from giving advice. So there's this intentional self-distraction that comes into play in, in most of Kennedy era, you know, uh, diplomatic interactions with the French, which is very disappointing, I find. They look at the packaging more than the package. Uh, mm -hmm. which yeah. you know, it is damaging as you said you know we can understand the reasons but it's too bad that they could not go past that especially 20 years after the war 15 years after the war and it's very interesting what you said about Kennedy because as you said he is young and you know he dies after only three years on the job you know it's not like he had a whole lifetime of, of experience I mean De Gaulle has been here for, for longer he's been a head of state in 45-47 during the Provisional uh, Republic And he's been around for a longer time. He's, I mean, he's way older than Kennedy. So you would expect him to, you know, he has way more baggage. So you would expect him to have this wiser approach. And so it kind of makes sense. Um, and it's too bad that Kennedy had these prejudices. But then again, you understand that he might have been able to grow past them, but he never really got the chance. And speaking of evolving, De Gaulle is a good example of that. Because as we said, you know, in 45-47, he, he has a very classic, point of view on French colonies, and let's focus on French Indochina, you know, which is composed of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, which has been a French colony since the end of the 19th century, basically. And as the listeners may know, in the 1950s, there is a war over there against the forces uh, led by Ho Chi Minh, long story short. And in 54, the French lose. They, are, they lose the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, and they have to recognize the independence of their former colonies. And De Gaulle, if you had asked him the question in, I don't know, 48, should France defend her colony to the last man? He would have said yes, no questions asked. But in 53, 54, he should have said, or he would have said, yeah, you know, we should have discussions with them. You know, his thinking evolved, because as you said, his thinking evolves towards, that's not the way to be a power right now. You don't want to have colonies. You need to have technology, you need to have the nuclear power, and you need to have the means to use that power. And he, as a, then when he becomes president, he works towards that. So his thinking about the French colonies and Indochina in particular evolves a lot. And then it shows in Algeria because at first, of course, he wants to preserve the thing, but then he's, he understands there is no way to preserve this. So we have to accept the fact as they are and we have to give Algeria its independence, which will happen in 1962. And the problem is that in Indochina, there are other parties interested, and the Americans are the main one, because, you know, it's, we're in the Cold War, and Ho Chi Minh is a communist. And now we have this Northern Republic, which is a communist country, and we have first the state of Vietnam, and then the Republic of Vietnam, which is South Vietnam. And, you know, after the French leave, we have this situation where the Americans basically take over the French. And as you said, they don't he, uh, heed the French advice at all. They, they think they can do better. They think they can do what the French failed to do, which is basically to remove the communists from the country. So it starts before Kennedy, but it gets way bigger under Kennedy. Can you explain to us how Kennedy's administration handled the situation in Vietnam when, when, they, when he arrives? Yeah, there's, uh, well, basically over two and a half years, there's this massive increase in the number of American military advisors who are in the country. So, uh, you know, towards the end of the Eisenhower presidency, it's there are a few hundred American advisors and there's aid money flowing in, but it just explodes um, dramatically in two and a half years. So um, is, a, is America part of a hot war in Vietnam in 1963? Well, technically, legally, no. However, you have American 
uh, advisors going into the field with South Vietnamese units that are hunting partisans. And if they're fired at, they'll fire back. Americans are dying in South Vietnam on, on John Kennedy's watch. So it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, maybe I was going to say slow motion march to war, but the tempo is a little bit faster than that. And the Gaul sees all this happening. So, you know, for him, it, you know, the exit was a little bit easier to stomach from Vietnam than, than Algeria because it's not a settler colony per se. Um, and, you know, this quintessential battle that, that ends the, the French era, Dien Bien Phu, it just underlines how much French planners had, had underestimated their, their enemy when they, they picked the location of the decisive battle. And they ceded the high ground and on the assumption that there's no way that the, the Vietnamese partisans would be able to haul their artillery up the hill. And no, they couldn't haul their artillery up the hill. However, they could take it apart down to the nut, reassemble it from the high points. And so there's learning from, from that defeat. The other thing that's absolutely terrifying to both the French and the British, is how the Eisenhower administration casually offered France the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in 1954 for use in Vietnam against the Viet Minh. And they just, they can't believe that this offer was even put forward because there's, there's something to be said, you know, there's a long debate about the morality of dropping it against Japan in, in 1945. Uh, but there's no justification whatsoever for resorting to such a drastic step. And this is, this scares France. This, just this idea of like a loose nuclear war in the bush at some place in, in the third world. So the point, so there's a, a, a sit down between JFK and uh, de Gaulle in Paris in the spring of 1961. And there are many topics to discuss. Vietnam is one of them. And the point that de Gaulle makes, he, you get readouts from this in um, DDF, the French uh, diplomatic documents, and Frus, and then uh, you'll find more uh, items in presidential libraries. You can fill your boots with uh, with readings on this. But the the French point is this: the more you push in Vietnam, the more you force Moscow and Beijing to push back, and. This is no longer, no one is really thinking about what's best for the Vietnamese or listening to the Vietnamese. It's all about a contest between the two. And you're going to end up destroying this country to prove a point to one another, to the, the three superpowers. And you're going to have the same result that we did after seven uh, years of, of war. So de Gaulle has suggested uh, very early on in the Kennedy presidency let us be your um, honest lawyer here. We'll try and we'll see if we can get people talking instead of fighting. And it may take a period of time, but ultimately the goal should be for the Vietnamese to determine a, a Vietnamese future on their own. And if they're neutral, that should be good enough for us. It should be good enough for the communists. Just so long as they're not armed and threatening their neighbors, then, then so be it. We can walk away, job done. And so this is the point. It's very simple. And all of his uh, high-ranking officials, they spent two and a half years, you know, basically repeating this line to every American counterpart they can, they can find. And uh, they, try, they try politeness. You know, they try to find sympathetic ears. And the argument, it just, it's not heard. It's not, there's no, there's no, that's an interesting perspective. Why don't you try that track? And we'll continue the military aid and the military training. And we'll, we'll pursue the two in tandem. And if diplomacy provides an exit, we'll take it. If the military situation changes and we can win on the ground, that'll provide us an exit. We'll, you know, we'll basically play it by ear. There's just really no interest in pursuing the diplomatic track. And uh, the results are as catastrophic as, as de Gaulle would have, would have predicted, which is really unfortunate. You know, when I was, when I was writing, you know, there's, there's pressure from certain people to, to like, okay, in your framing of this, yeah, you, you have to both sides it. Okay. You have to think about like the merits of what one is saying and the merits of what another is saying. But I, I tend to unfortunately be a little bit more black and white. And I just say like in hindsight, 
one party to this conversation was 100% right and one party was 100% wrong. So I don't really need, feel the need to pick apart the argument that was right that went unheeded by people with power who went and completely shredded three countries in Southeast Asia. So um, it's, yeah, I guess this question about what to do in Vietnam and Laos and, and Cambodia, it's a chapter in Franco-American relations, but it's just a really tragic chapter in world history and 20th century history. Just a very avoidable catastrophe for, for all countries involved. Yeah, and do you think, and I mean, there is all the prejudice against France, as you mentioned before, and they're basically not heeding the advice because it comes from France. So that's the main reason. Yeah. But there, do you think also there's like a, an overconfidence in Americans on, on power and capacity of solving everything with basically having the bigger gun? Well, there, there is uh, considerably more optimism in the United States than in many other Western countries. And uh, at this point, it's because, uh, you know, we're uh, Roosevelt New Dealers. We fixed the Great Depression through bureaucracy. Uh, we won World War II. Uh, we were the arsenal of democracy through bureaucracy. When we get all these Ivy League brains together, there really isn't any, you know, if we can win World War II, how are we not going to win a Bush War in Southeast Asia, right? So it's not as delusional and overly confident as you might think at the time. But the, the, what I find really tragic in all of this is that um, France is not saying anything to the Americans that pretty much every other serious member of the Western Alliance thinks. The British feel exactly the same way, and they're too cowardly to tell the Americans as directly as France does. Canada feels exactly the same way as the French do. The West Germans feel the exact same way as the French do. Now, it's just um, for, you know, out of a, 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 just a sense of trepidation about how the Americans will react to, to, to hearing bad news, they all remain silent. Now, if they had added their voices, and if you know, five of the most serious NATO members all went to the United States together and said, look, we have no interest in being drawn into World War III in Southeast Asia because you have decided that Vietnam must remain in the anti-communist camp. Maybe that would have affected a different outcome. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. And so, I, you know, I admire the French position. It was right in the end, but I think uh, it's, uh, the French were very much let down, um, predictably let down. Because you look at all the diplomacy towards Germany uh, after World War I, and the, the Brits immediately forget that they had fought with France. You know, it's, it's kind of a pattern of the Anglo-Saxon powers to work with Fran France when they have to, and then kind of forget that they're, they're supposed to be friends in peacetime as well. Yeah, there, it's, it's a real relationship. I mean, I mean, for the British and the French, I can understand, because, you know, we've been allies for now over a little bit over a century. We've been at each other's throats for eight centuries, so there is some baggage there. So I can I can get the the sentiment that you know we can't trust these frogs. You know they, they just they're not trustworthy because we've been at war so many times over the past centuries. So I can get that, and trust me, the French don't trust the British that much more. So it's it's a reciprocal sentiment. As for the Americans, it's funny because there were always been allies with. France. The closest they've been to a conflict is the quasi-war. So they've never, in, never been at war with each other. They've always been uh, on the same side uh, during war. So it's really based on cultural prejudices, which is fascinating when you think about it, because it's completely avoidable. And I find interesting that you mentioned that the other NATO powers just would not come to the, on the stage and say, look, we agree with France, we think the same way, you have five, 10, 20 voices here saying the same thing, hear us. And I get why they would not talk. You know, you're basically saying, I mean, at this point in, let's say, 1960, 61, 62, the USA are seen as the boss of the Western world. So you're saying to your boss, you're wrong. It's not an easy thing to do. So it's, you know, I don't want to judge them. But the thing is, when we talk about France, and especially when we talk about De Gaulle, De Gaulle had no conception of having a boss, <laughs> I think. It, it shows during the war, because he always... And it's, part of, it's logical, you know, to be heard when you don't have the same power. You have to talk and act as if you had the same power, as if you're on the same plane as your 
opponent or your or your ally. He talked to Churchill as he had an army the same size as he did in 1942, even though he had pretty much nothing. He talked to JFK as he was an equal. You know, he snubbed him, as is famously known when he came to Paris. You know, he talked with Jackie about French cinema and movie and novels more than he talked about diplomacy at some point, which infuriated JFK, apparently. But it's to make a point. You're not more important than I am. We are both presidents. We're both state leaders. We're in the same camp, you have to respect that. And I think he understood that the Americans did not respect that at that point, at least when it came to France. So he had to make the point, and he was very consistent in that approach. So you mentioned the Kennedy approach here. As we all know, Kennedy dies in 63, is assassinated, and we have Johnson. Uh, that replaces him. Is there any major shift when Johnson come, comes around? Uh, well, the entire national security team was, was essentially retained. So, um, you know, LBJ had been dispatched to South Vietnam on a fact-finding tour. And um, it created the impression that he was part of the policy-making team. However, uh, LBJ was very much an outsider. He was, uh, you know, he grew up poor. He went to teacher's college. Everybody else in the Kennedy administration, they're all Ivy League educated former executives and university administrators, and they are the elite of the elite. And uh, LBJ was a, an incredibly skilled politician, and he just felt like he was oil and water with these Kennedy guys to the point where um, there was a lot of speculation that he would uh, decline a nomination as Kennedy's vice president for another term. If it had got to that point in 1964, he kind of wanted out. But he relies on Kennedy's guys. And he does, like, it's a traumatic event, like a, an incredible tragedy that brings him to the White House. And he felt an obligation to continue Kennedy's policy in Vietnam, which, as he understood it, which we all see in front of us, was a steady escalation growing aid, more trainers, just marching closer and closer to the precipice of actually sending American combat troops over. There's a, you know, the, the one subject of historiographical debate is, would Kennedy have committed combat troops to Vietnam had he got his second term? And there are Kennedy fans who say, no, it was, uh, it, uh, he would have done a complete 180. And uh, I don't want to bore you for 45 minutes by name-dropping authors and, and book titles and such. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think LBJ basically did what he thought JFK had done had he lived to that point. I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to LBJ, the president who wanted to expand access to college and implement all sorts of anti-poverty programs, but then had Vietnam thrust in front of him than I am for Kennedy, the foreign policy expert who wanted to become president to solve problems like this and just just couldn't see his way around it. The way the de Gaulle team looked at Kennedy is they thought that he was both uh, indecisive and aggressive, which made him very, very dangerous in, in the world. And when you look at the public statements from Kennedy the last year of his life, you know, it's... Uh, you know, one day it's, uh, you know, Vietnam is a, a, an absolute linchpin. It cannot be lost. However, there must be peace with the Soviet bloc. We must, you know, turn our swords into plowshares. And, uh, you know, at the same time, there's all sorts of plotting against Fidel Castro, even after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's just like, if you only read one set of speeches, you would think, okay, this guy's a great peacenik who's trying to find his way out of um, the Cold War. And if you read the other set of speeches it's well, this guy's an ardent cold war hawk he's a he's militaristic he's aggressive but it was the same person and you gotta it's really hard to kind of figure out which side of his mouth he was thinking from yeah and when he was faced with a major crisis like the Berlin wall or the cuban missile crisis i mean to be fair he was very smart about it he was not reckless and he maybe avoided a third world war with catastrophic consequences. And the same man that takes these reckless decisions when it comes to Southeast Asia. So it's it's very interesting, you know, is 
is certainly not a dull character. In some parties, he is that Ivy League, very educated man that thinks a lot, that has this education, that uses it to be a good foreign minister, president, if you will. I got a little vignette for you, okay? So when Kennedy is a, an undergraduate at Harvard, he, he does this like typical undergrad thing where he waits until like 36 hours before his term paper is due, before he starts working on it. And uh, he calls his dad, who's like a super rich guy. He says, oh, man, I am in the weeds. I'm going to fail this course. I need you to do something for me. So his dad hires all these stenographers, sends them to his, his place in Boston. And so JFK is just, uh, he's on the clock. He's under pressure, pacing around the room, just saying things out loud. And the stenographers are cleaning them up. And then, like, they get it done. The paper is submitted. He passes. It's a success. But that's kind of where he was at his very best was like under high pressure. Now the whole like longer term approach that would avoid those high pressure situations, that's where he was just no good at all. Right. But you know, when it really came down to it, he found a way to, to steer clear. Interesting guy. That's for sure. So we have Johnson continuing his work. What do you think Kennedy would have done, which makes sense given Johnson's character. And then what happens uh, when we have Nixon coming over? And we're not going to go too long in Nixon because he's after De Gaulle. But, you know, De Gaulle quits the presidency in 69 and dies in 70. Just before we move to Nixon, just a quick parenthesis. What was De Gaulle's appreciation of Johnson? Did he have any opinion on him or did he was like, okay, not that important? Okay, you put me on the spot here. I believe they only met once, which was at JFK's funeral. And the LBJ assumption was that, you know, my predecessor couldn't make it work. I have, there's no point me even trying. So it's, there's no exchange of letters. There's really limited contact, only the one personal visit, something completely unrelated to diplomacy. So it's just that kind of, both sides have given, given up. Complete non-starter from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So the, like... The, the French are working behind the scenes to, for um, to get North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese talking. They're doing it very clandestinely behind the scenes in 62, 63. And after the coup against uh, the Xiem regime, they, it essentially kind of brings that activity to a halt. And they go to ground for most of the, the Johnson years. So there's a pause in their efforts. But when Johnson wants to get peace talks started, he goes back through the French. The French had just been basically waiting to be asked. And as soon as they were asked, they put their good offices to use. And in fact, you know, the, the deal that LBJ's negotiators basically come to with the Vietnamese communists in 68, right before the election, it's the same deal that Nixon gets at Christmas in, in 72. But there's a whole bunch of diplomatic intrigue. Is Richard Nixon guilty of treason for undermining this peace deal? Uh, I think clearly yes. There's a lot of uh, cloak and dagger stuff. And LBJ, very weirdly, chose not to call out Nixon for his role in sabotaging the peace deal in 68, which was strategically very odd. But anyway, that's a whole different rabbit hole to go down. But uh, De, Gaulle, De Gaulle actually treated Nixon very well. When uh, Nixon was in political retirement, he had his, he flew to Paris. They had a very nice conversation. De Gaulle treated him like a former vice president, like a representative state. And I think they understood each other much, much better than De Gaulle and either of the two Democratic presidents he had to work with. So, you know, I guess the counterfactual, the one interesting counterfactual is if you had De Gaulle and Nixon trying to work together on Vietnam in 61, 62, 63, would they have got a better result? I, even though I do think Richard Nixon is a very bad person for many different reasons, I think on this one particular thing, Nixon would have been a heck of a lot more receptive to French advice than, than Kennedy was, because he doesn't have all those stereotypes and baggage and all that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good what if. So as you said, France basically tries to be a peace broker in the 60s. And they do help the Americans come to this deal, that failed deal in 68, and then that, in quotes, success of 72. So 
How would you describe France's role on the international scene since then? You know, as this ex-dominant power that is now a, let's say, relatively important one, but it's still way behind America when it comes to sheer military power and other stuff. But we're still talking about a country with strong ties with many countries, ex-colonies and others, that has a very potent military force, nuclear carrier, a whole fleet. They do their own weapons, aircraft and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's not nothing. You know, it's a big military power, big economical power. So how would you describe her role now uh, since the 60s and 70s? Well, the, the communist leadership in North Vietnam, for the most part, they're French educated, they're French speaking. If they want to pass a message to the Americans, they want to talk to the French. And they view France as being part of the Western system, but also having a very strong independent streak. They're, you know, when de Gaulle takes France out of the NATO integrated command, that's a very, that's kind of a shot across the bow to the Americans. So, yeah, they do certainly see France as a very useful power. And this is what de Gaulle is hoping for going into the 1930s, that we can be this intermediary between the first world and, and the third world. And we'll get involved in certain places to help resolve uh, crises. And, you know, it's a good use of the French skill set and diplomatic tradition. And uh, do they ultimately help get the Americans out of Vietnam? Yes. 12 years later than de Gaulle wanted. But, um, you know, there's an approach to the Americans. Do you want us to get you a diplomatic settlement? In 61, the Americans say no. In 68, the Americans ask them to start helping with the diplomacy. They do. They get a deal. One American politician who's running for president scuppers that deal. That president who scuppered that deal goes back to the French a third time in 1972 and says, hey, can you know that deal that I killed last time? Could you maybe revive that for us? And, you know, France is always there, always ready to help. And they do get it done in, in the end, in 72. Yeah, that's, that's generally where I, where I think they're... Yeah, they, they do find ways to be useful, at least. That's a, that's a positive of that colonial era that they had before, which, you know, can be criticized on many things. But there is... N- knowledge that was acquired and as you said france has a long expertise and uh, experience in uh, diplomacy and understanding other countries and we're talking about you know it's very easier for the vietnamese too they're more used to dealing with the french than anybody else because of the colony uh, colonial era so it's maybe easier also to have that relationship and to, to talk together and it's funny because when you talk about prejudices you talked before that de gaulle had this idea of kind of a triumvirate between the americans and british and the french to discuss things at NATO before talking about with everybody else. In France, you know, we have this perspective that important things are discussed over dinner. <laughs> you know, you, you set up a table and then we, you chat, and that's where the, the real things are discussed. And when we see the Americans, we say, no, they need the proper setup. It has to be staged. It has to be, you know, very, a big bureaucracy which did wonders for the Americans, as you said, in the 30s and 40s. But from the, the French prejudice on the Americans is that without all this set up, they can't decide anything. So it's, it works both ways. This, the French probably have these prejudices that the Americans, can't we just, you know, take a cup of coffee and, you know, discuss this and get it over with? The, the French like to weasel their way, <laughs> if you will. It's part of the French character, I guess. And, you know, the, um, the Americans probably should have used that skill that they maybe they lacked. You know? the, the rest, I mean, being a French guy living in Canada, the prejudice that we have about the Americans, that even if they have good intentions, they come out way too strong. You know, they, they just, there is no finesse. And it, it, does, it, it does hurt them in the end. And certainly they did in, in Vietnam, because as you said, even when they wanted to achieve peace, they, they needed the help to achieve it. Uh, they just didn't have the expertise to do it by themselves. So just to have a last point, since the Vietnam War, I mean, it's a traumatic event for the Americans. Even to this day, it's the most polarizing event of the 20th century for America, I think. How would you say the relationship between the USA and France have evolved since then? Still, it's um, you. We I think we both have this feeling that when push comes to shove in the moment of crisis, the two 
will always stand together like they have since 1917. And um, the drama between the crises is what keeps the relationship spicy and interesting. And I find whenever the politicians start talking about uh, Lafayette and the Statue of Liberty, whenever they have to reach for the metaphors, that's when I think, okay, this is when no listening is about to start happening. And that's when I start to get worried. But when they start talking about what kind of MRAPs need to be sent over to Ukraine uh, and whether it makes sense for France to talk to China to see if China really has any serious interest in doing anything constructive in the Ukraine in a way that the, that, that I think I think that in the crisis mode, they work, they work very well together and they always will continue to work together because of the complementary skill sets. Yeah, exactly. They, they are very complementary, I think, you know, the... They're very different, but together they can achieve fantastic things. So I think it. I think it is very, very good. If we're talking about what's happening right now in Ukraine, I think it is very good for the Western alliance to have uh, a squeaky wheel like France, which is big and important and considered to sometimes thumb its nose at the United States. And the president of that country can call the president of Russia, who is a horrible war criminal and deserves to be tried at the Hague and face a Mussolini-like end to his political career. It's good that that can happen because no American can can make that call, can make that contact. And France can do the same with China. And if it dead ends, like it appears to have dead end ended over the last year, you at least know that there's nobody there on the other end willing to do anything constructive. So I, I do I do think it's a good, it's, they're good, good dance partners, I I will say. Interesting ones, anyway. <laughs> That's for sure. So, before we sign off, can you, you you mentioned your books? So, can you tell the listeners a bit about your books and where they can find you if they want to? Oh, um, so uh, despite this accent, I am a resident of Kentucky, and uh, I've written a couple books for the University Press of Kentucky. The first one was uh, JFK and De Gaulle: How the United States and France Failed in Vietnam, nineteen sixty one to nineteen sixty three came out in uh, 2019. It's available through the University Press of Kentucky uh, catalog, but uh, I get into all the stuff we discussed here and, and more. But um, I think uh, I should not tell you this, however, in the interest of oversharing. You know, international relations and war and peace, it was my, my first love, but I think I've decided that uh, I will move on to more uplifting topics in, in future projects. So I've actually got a baseball book in, in the works about uh, the season that uh, Jackie Robinson, baseball icon, he played as a minor leaguer in Montreal. And all of the French-speaking uh, baseball fans in Montreal came out in a way that was really heartwarming to support this black American player who was doing something consequential to help break down Jim Crow and racial segregation. And they all rallied around him. And I think it's a great baseball story. It's a great story about Montrealers and no one dies, which is the most important thing. So uh, this book is, uh, I'm working on it as we speak. It'll come out with uh, the University of Nebraska Press at some point, probably in uh, 24 or 25. Nice, beautiful project. That's a very good idea. And I'm looking forward to reading this. It, it will be a hardship having to, I, I, you know, as a researcher, oh, oh no, I have to go to the foreign ministry archives in Paris, uh, or I have to go to Montreal in the summertime for, for research. I, I really pick these horrible places to go spend time. Quelle, quelle horreur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're going to have a terrible time in both Montreal and Paris, you know, yeah. horrible cities to visit and worst food ever. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I, I do this deliberately. I know what I'm, know what I'm doing here. No, no, you're safe. So thank you very much, Sean. It was great having you on the show. We appreciate it that you came over. And it's a great discussion about De Gaulle, John Kennedy, and the New World Order, especially in Southeast Asia. I'm sure the listeners will love this discussion. So merci beaucoup. Au revoir. Appreciate you. Thanks for your time. You can find the Lafayette We Are Here podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on lafayettepodcast.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash lafayettepodcast. 
You can also reach me on social media or by email. All the links are on the website. The music for this podcast is the Marche pour la Cérémonie des Turcs, composed by Jean-Baptiste Lully, arranged and performed by Jérôme Arfouche. Thank you.